Chapter 6 of Autobiography of an Actress by Anna Cora Mollett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Most sad was our entrance into that metropolis where the heart of the great world is said to beat with its merriest pulsations. The strength of our invalid was completely exhausted, and scarcely had we reached Paris when he became dangerously ill. To have delivered the letters of mere fashionable introduction, with which we were abundantly supplied, would at that moment have been a mockery. We should have been desolate indeed had not friends sprung up around us in the kind relatives of a French brother-in-law. He was the husband of that sister who first won Mr. Mawat's admiration, and who has long since gone to the better land. The mother and sisters of Mr. G. were women of high refinement and most lovable character. They at once devoted themselves to lightening our cares for the sick and cheering us by their agreeable society. Mr. Mollet, however, resisted all persuasions to place himself in the hands of their family physician. His prejudices were in favor of homeopathy. Hahnemann was then residing in Paris, and if the new science could yield balm for the invalid's affliction, we might seek it at the fountain head. Hahnemann, at that period, had become too feeble to visit patients. He received them at his own residence, Mr. Mollet being confined to his bed, the duty of calling upon the learned doctor and of minutely describing the case devolved upon me. It was scarcely nine o'clock when I entered Hahnemann's magnificent mansion, but his salons were already crowded and one o'clock struck before I gained an audience. A valet in gaudy livery, who had taken my card some four hours before, then approached and informed me that I would now be received into the consultation chamber. I followed him through a succession of apartments, all richly furnished and embellished with numberless busts of Hanuman in various sizes. A door was thrown open, and I entered the consultation room. At the head of a long table sat a lady, dressed in the most recherche demi-toilette, with a gold pen in her hand, and piles of books and papers strewn around her. She might have been forty years old, but I am no judge of ages. Her form was finely rounded, and her face still fresh and handsome. Her brow was remarkably high, and the hair, thrown back from her temples, fell in long, light curls upon her shoulders. Her complexion was brilliantly clear, and her blue eyes had a deeply thoughtful expression. She rose to receive me, and it was not until she resumed her seat that a shriveled little old man became visible. He was reclining in a sumptuous armchair, with a black velvet skull-cap on his head, and in his mouth a richly enameled pipe that reached almost to his knees. His face reminded me of a ruddy apple that had been withered by the frost, 
but the small dark eyes deeply set in his head could scarcely have glittered with more brilliancy in his lusty youth as i took the seat which mrs hanuman designated he noticed me with a look rather than a bow and removing the pipe from his mouth deliberately sent a volume of smoke across the table probably in token of greeting mrs hanuman addressed me and wrote down my answers to her numerous questions but at the conclusion of the interview declined prescribing until the invalid made the effort to appear in person hanuman sat puffing away as though his existence depended upon the amount of smoke with which he surrounded and apparently intent alone upon his pleasant occupation but when i spoke of our long visit to germany he suddenly took a pipe from his mouth sprechen sie deutsch were the first words he addressed to me i had only to utter jawohl when a species of promethean fire seemed to shoot through the veins of the smoking automaton he laid down his pipe and commenced an animated conversation in his own language he spoke of germany and her institutions with enthusiasm asked me many questions concerning america and expressed his admiration of the few americans with whom he was acquainted as soon as politeness permitted i led back to the subject to the point from which we had originally started mr mawet's illness in germany at the first medical question the pipe returned to its former position the expanded countenance shriveled up again the distended muscles relaxed the erect form sank back into a withered heap and was quickly enveloped in smoke he was the wearied-out old man again mrs hanuman answered my question with much suavity and then gracefully rose this was her signal of dismission i promised to return with the patient as soon as possible she touched a silver bell the door was thrown open and the liveried valet escorted me to my carriage i afterwards heard the history of mrs hanuman she had been cured by her husband of a disease which other physicians pronounced necessarily fatal through gratitude she bestowed her hand upon the man who had saved her life her husband taught her the science of medicine she made rapid progress and he soon pronounced his wife as skilful a physician as himself when he became infirm his practice was left almost entirely in her hands a few days after the first visit i returned accompanied by mr mallet again we had to wait several hours in the antechambers and when admitted the interview was unsatisfactory after but a short trial of the medicines prescribed his sufferings were so intense that homeopathy was abandoned and madame g s family physician called in four months passed on and brought no relief but succor came at last from the hands of an eminent american surgeon dr m of new york one fortnight from the day when he first undertook the case Mr. Mawet was able to exchange his darkened chamber for our lightly curtained drawing-room. 
what a day of joy was that on which he took his first walk with unbandaged eyes upon the champs-elysees what a moment of happiness when looking over my shoulder at the volume i was reading aloud he discovered that for the first time for many months his eyes could distinguish print with a keener sense of enjoyment than i have ever ex yet experienced i now mingle with the gay world and became thoroughly fascinated with parisian society a portion of every morning was spent in visiting antique palaces galleries of paintings and various curiosities and in the evening we often attended two or three balls on the same night we also frequented the theatre opera concerts as often as our social engagements would permit mr mawet seldom ventured to trust his eyes to the blaze of ballroom chandeliers but insisted upon my aunt and myself accepting every agreeable invitation he used to say that he derived more amusement from listening to our humorous descriptions than he could have derived from being present the constant habit of repeating for his diversion everything we had seen and heard soon rendered us quite accomplished raconteurs i insert the following description of a fancy ball given by the american millionaire colonel t which has declared to be the most charming of the many we attended the account was written by me at the time for the lady's companion of all the magnificent entertainments which paris has this season witnessed the ball costume given at the residence of colonel t on the second night of the carnival for the splendor and concentrated variety of amusements bears away the palm long before the palace-like mansion of colonel t could be reached the interminable line of equipage with their coronets and coat of arms the livery coachman in front and fancifully dressed chasseurs behind announced what guests would grace his entertainment on approaching the hotel some fifty gendarmes well mounted guarded the brilliantly illumined and spacious courtyard while the canopied porch and whole front of the mansion were thronged by the attendant domestics of the visitors alighting you are received by some twenty footmen and ushered into an antechamber the centre of which is occupied by the at present fashionable ornament a handsome billiard table passing through this apartment you are loudly announced at the door of the reception-room where stands the ever graceful and affable hostess whose very smile makes welcome and whose courteous greeting sheds ease on all around twelve gorgeous salons were thrown open where the uncouth door once had been costly drapery was suspended tastefully gathered in folds or festoons the carpets of velvet the divans ottomans and couches were all that could be imagined of luxurious and beautiful the walls were fluted with gold or rich silks and hung with the works of the first masters the ceilings painted in a thousand devices one apartment raised above the others overlooked the ballroom and was lined with a row of draperied arches 
from which the dancers were viewed to the greatest advantage their light forms reflected in the bright mirrors opposite which covered one entire side of the dancing apartment the thousand lights shed a flood of brilliancy which would almost have eclipsed sunshine the sparkling of diamonds and many-colored gems threw a luster around almost painfully dazzling and the varied the charming the voluptuously beautiful costumes when fashion whose rigorous sway clothes the hunchback and the sylph in the same garb forsook her throne what taste what art were expended to set forth every grace and show beauty robed in all her charms heightened by adornments which only displayed what they seemed intended to conceal there were sultans and sultanas queens and courtiers knights templar and ladies in tournament robes the goddess of night wrapped in her glittering silver stars and the crescent on her fair brow one bed of diamonds naiads and nymphs of the woods anna boleyn and madame pompadour even joan of arc herself forsook the rude field to enjoy the soft pleasures of these princely halls there were costumes of every clime of every land where woman smiles or sighs it would have employed the eyes of argus to have scanned them all soon as the midnight hour arrived the swell of music stole upon the ear from the exquisite band of fifty musicians and a general rush was made to the ballroom until then unopened a large circle drawn in the centre of the apartment was the magic boundary not to be passed but the throng around it was inconceivably dense until the sound of horses feet was heard when all with one accord drew back as four fairy steeds mounted by cinderella postilions drawing a queen mab chariot of crimson velvet with golden wheel flew twice around the ring a pair of lovely shepherdesses placing their flowered wreath crooks upon the ground sprang lightly from the chariot and as the car and its outriders disappeared moving gracefully round in a fanciful pas de deux amidst the noisy plaudits of admiring spectators the guests elevated themselves on sofas and couches sometimes three or four crowding together on the small and delicately shaped chairs at the imminent risk of losing their balance while a host of crushed unfortunates on tiptoe behind clinging to those raised by chance as so often happened in the world above them made extremely perilous the position of both parties thus adding much to the excitement and according to the rule that pleasure is enriched by sharing with her sister pain to the enjoyment of the scene the pretty shepherdesses after finishing their graceful evolutions were put to flight by the entrance of some fifteen or twenty turks knights and highlanders on horseback who after going through a ludicrous contradance 
galloped noiselessly away amidst peals of merriment which must have drowned the trampling of their horses feet for strange to say none was heard then entered madame pompadour louis quatorze and his court with their powdered wigs and magnificent jewelled robes they performed with much spirit the old-fashioned dances of their age amongst which the stately courtesying minuet called forth the most unbounded applause it were in vain to attempt a description of the series of dances in character which followed each and all were executed with mingled taste and skill and at their close the giddy waltz and gay quadrille were merrily joined in by the company in general and brigands flew round encircling their fair captives christians unmolested stole the pride of the turkish harems and shepherdesses looked happy with lords when dancing had tired the unwilling feet of many an enraptured fair one the droll queries of a strolling manager and pertinently stupid answers of his clown forming a set of enigmas or charades gratefully varied the diversions a handsome supper-table filled with a confectionery was accessible the whole evening and a little past midnight the rich curtains which concealed a spacious apartment were thrown back disclosing the most sumptuous banqueting board spread with every delicacy that could gratify the palate or satisfy the appetite heavy with the service of gold bright with the dazzling radiancy of costly candelabras and the mellow light of moonlit lamps which lined the gilded walls rich with such ornaments as the genius of paris alone could execute the table itself was so spacious and long that reflected in the large mirror at its foot the eye refused to reach its farther end when graced on either side by fair women who seemed to have been gathered from every land lovely relics of every age relieved by the background of brave men like the setting to jewels what more splendid sight could be imagined the morning had far advanced before the courteous host and hostess found their banquet halls deserted it proved indeed no sleep till morn when youth and pleasure meet to chase the glowing hours with flying feet but a gayer festival with more agremons and less alloy to the general enjoyment may seldom again be witnessed the cost of this a ball is currently estimated at eight thousand dollars one lady present wore so many diamonds said to be valued at two hundred thousand dollars that she was escorted in her carriage by gendarmes for fear of robbery colonel t's fancy ball was given on the second day of the carnival the celebration of the parisian carnival does not of course approach that of the italian yet it is worthy of some mention for three days paris empties its populace into the streets and every willing head wears folly's cap and bells the carnival procession consists of a cavalcade followed by infantry in the uniform of their respective lands amongst these the chinese are the most singular 
Then comes the bouffe gras, an immense ox, fattened almost to the size of an elephant, led by three butchers. Two of them are dressed as Romans, crowned with laurel, and bear glittering axes. The third is costumed as an Indian chief. All three of them look as though they had successfully tried upon themselves the experiment to which their contented-looking victim is indebted for its enormous proportions and present distinction. The horns of the ox are gilded and wreathed with flowers, and its huge size comparisoned with a golden cloth wrought with fanciful devices. Following the bouffe gras, a car of white and gold is drawn by four white horses, with wreaths of flowers about their necks, and on their backs saddle-cloths of silver and gold. The car is filled with young girls, youths and lovely children in the garb of pagan deities. Old Time, with an infant in his arms, drives the horses. As the car passes our door, a rosy Cupid was playfully aiming silver arrows at his youthful, half-nude mother, Venus. Apollo was lying at the feet of one of the muses. Pan entertained another with his rustic pipe. Vulcan was busily preparing an iron net to entrap the lover of his wife, and Mars was laying his helmet and shield at the feet of Venus. A rich canopy suspended over the car shielded the mythological group from sun or rain. The procession ends with a heterogeneous mass of carriages, wagons, and market carts, all filled with masqueraders dressed according to their eccentric fancies. The bouffe gras pays a visit to the king and certain of the ministers, and then to the stall of the butcher, to whom he owes his honors. The stall is hung with a tricornered ribbons and flowers. In front of it, the procession halts, and the health of the butcher is drunk in champagne and responded to with cheers. While this ceremony is taking place, a bountiful supply of cakes is flung into the streets, and noisy urchins scramble for their possession. From early morning until late night, the boulevards and all the public streets are thronged with masqueraders, who delight the crowd with ludicrous feats and sometimes enact comic characters with great esprit. The dominoes are generally supplied with bags of flour, from which they pelt indiscriminately every passer-by. But when a carriage graced by ladies stops the way, bonbons and bouquets are showered at the windows. The masquerade balls commence at twelve o'clock, and though attended by the aristocratic portion of the community as well as by the middle classes, they are too often the scenes of intrigue and boisterous mirth though never of open indecorum. During our stay in Paris, General C. was the residing American minister. He and his agreeable family were alike popular with the French, the English, and their own countrymen. Their entertainments were strikingly informal and unostentatious, and therefore all the more delightful. We could not but enjoy the touches of republicanism which were now and then intermingled with aristocratic usages. The attractions must have been great elsewhere, 
that ever induced us to forego our ambassador's reception or balls through constant mingling in parisian society we became acquainted with various distinguished persons whose characters and peculiarities i should delight in sketching but i only feel at liberty to mention those who are in some way connected to my own history my history at this period was simply that of everyday fashionable life and the interchange of civilities alone threw us in contact with those who had won fame and honours from a fastidious public i saw rochelle in her principal characters and i retained the most vivid recollections of her thrilling impersonations there was something terrific something overwhelming in them all from the moment she came upon the stage i was always under the influence of a spell her eyes had the power of a basilisk on me and flashed with an intense brightness which no basilisk could have rivalled i never expect to see that acting equalled to surpass it in impassioned force and grandeur seems to me impossible accident made me acquainted with the two young sisters of rochelle they were then at school and were receiving a liberal education at the expense of their elder sister they spoke of her with enthusiastic affection and evidently looked forward to becoming her successors upon the stage the legitimate inheritors of her genius so many incidents have occurred since our seven months visit to paris that various events of deeper interest have very nearly obliterated my first impressions of the gay metropolis of its thousand works of art and of science and of its beautiful environs versailles st cloud etc and i do not therefore attempt to embody them in the form of a description the following extract from a letter addressed to a younger sister during the early part of our sojourn in paris may not be without interest to our young youthful readers what surprises me most in paris is that with its innumerable luxury it lacks the air of comfort which characterizes england it is difficult to get accustomed to the atmosphere of inconsistency which pervades everything wealth and poverty mirth and misery seem to walk hand in hand paris reminds me of a fine woman magnificently attired with soiled gloves rent stockings and worn-out shoes there is always a striking incongruity in the accessories of a parisian magnificence napoleon more than any other monarch adorned and enriched this city he planned and executed finished what had been begun and altered what was badly done he did not confine himself to the erection of public buildings to the making of roads and raising monuments but he cultivated the arts and sciences and fostered the genius of his countrymen the facilities for acquiring knowledge and receiving a thorough education can nowhere be greater than in this metropolis public lectures on all subjects are daily delivered free of cost and liberal instruction is bestowed on those who would devote themselves to the fine arts the maison royale saint denis is devoted to the education of the sisters daughters and nieces of the members of the legion of honour 
and hundreds of young girls yearly receive a classical education at the expense of the government. Their discipline is said to be particularly gentle. They wear a uniform of black. Poverty is not here considered to be nearly a crime as it is with us and in England. Talents, education, manners, even personal attractions are placed before riches. Admission into good society may be commanded by these, while with us the entrance is too often purchasable. The customs and fashions which we imitate as Parisian are not unfrequently mere caricatures of those that exist in Paris. For instance, it is the present mode not to introduce persons who meet at parties or in visiting, but the custom is intended to obviate the ceremoniousness of formal introductions. Everyone is expected to talk to his neighbor, and if mutual pleasure is received from the intercourse, an acquaintance is formed. The same fashion in vogue with us renders society cold and stiff. We abolish introductions because the Parisians do so, but we only take this first step in our transatlantic imitations. Few persons feel at liberty to address strangers. Little contracted circles of friends herd in clannish groups together and mar the true object of society. As yet, we only follow the fashions. We do not conceive the spirit which dictated them. So, in our mode of dressing, expensive materials, worn here only at balls, are imported by American merchants and pronounced to be very fashionable in Paris. They are universally bought by our belles, who, instead of wearing them at the proper seasons, parade the streets in what is meant exclusively for evening costume. Are we not as yet merely a nation of experimenters? Houses are built in a few weeks, to fall in a few more. Fortunes are made in a day, to be lost in another. We are like children working their samplers, who make hundreds of mistakes and destroy their work many times before they can perform it aright. You have always heard and read that the French nation were noted for their suavity of manners, gaiety of heart, and extreme politeness. But since the turbulent boulevardsments that have agitated France, and especially since the last revolution, this spirit, it is said, has changed. The men, in particular, are not so gay as they were, because their pursuit is not now so entirely that of pleasure. They ponder public contingencies more deeply, and France is not happy. All, both men and women, are politicians, and maintain their ground with a firmness which leads to long discussions. Both parties become easily excited, and courtliness of speech and manner are too often forgotten. The king, Louis-Philippe, is not beloved. So fearful is he of another attempt upon his life that he is scarcely ever seen in public. Paris is divided by the river Seine. On one side is the palace of the Tuileries, where the king resides. On the opposite side dwell the proud scions of the noble families of France. This society, called the Saint-Germain, 
is much more select and far more difficult of access than the court itself in the circles of the saint-germain the old style of address and ancient ceremonies in the splendid age of louis XIV are still adhered to and revered it strikes a stranger in paris that half the city is composed of magnificent shops the private dwellings are above them every family hires a floor and this manner of living is considered perfectly respectable even fashionable i was amused with the fanciful titles given to these magazines such as au pauvre diables à la balayeuse à la pensée à la jeune anglais etc le passage with which the city abounds are the most pleasant places where one can shop on foot the houses are built over long arches beneath which runs a sheltered promenade lined on both sides with boutiques these promenades are called passages they are more or less splendid according to the quarter of the city in which they are situated of all the beautiful squares with which the city is adorned the first and most magnificent is the place de la concorde or la place louis quinze as it is generally called many terrible catastrophes have rendered this spot famous amongst them the execution of louis the sixteenth and hundreds of other unfortunates known to fame and history from every side of this place there is a charming view standing in the centre you can behold two majestic buildings with an arcade walk running in front of them formed of corinthian columns and in the distance appears the chaste and lovely church of la madeleine to the east are the champs elysees and between the noble avenues of the trees rives the triumphal arch of napoleon called l'arc de triomphe de l'etoile on the west is the garden of the tuileries and on the south may be seen the chamber of the deputies also a line of costly edifices running along the banks of the seine and peering above them the dome of the invalides in the centre of the square is the obelisk of luxor which stood before the temple of thebes and was introduced by the french government from egypt it is an immense pyramid-like column slightly broken at the top and covered with hieroglyphs it took eight hundred men three months to remove it from its former station to accomplish this a road to the nile had to be made and numbers of arab dwellings which intercepted its path or were built against its base had to be levelled to the ground on either side of this venerable monument are two ingenious fountains not quite completed the square is filled with statues and in the evening brilliantly illuminated by a quantity of gilded lamps raised on fluted columns of glittering fretwork the palace vendome is another celebrated square and in the centre of which shoots up a triumphant pillar erected by napoleon in honour of his german campaign of eighteen o five 
it is built in imitation of trajan's pillar at rome and is said to have been formed of the cannon taken by napoleon in battle on the pedestal are represented in bas-relief the victories of napoleon and on top stands a statue of the great emperor a winding staircase leads to a terrace above the column which being one hundred and thirty feet high commands a fine view of the city the ascent is totally dark and each visitor carries a lantern presented to him by one of napoleon's veteran soldiers who guards the entrance the palace du carrousel is named after a grand tournament held there in the golden age of louis the sixteenth it was here also that the infernal machine exploded in eighteen hundred i was particularly charmed by the fountains which are scattered all over paris and that supply the city with water they play at certain hours of the day and the water is caught in buckets and barrels and sold by the poor to the rich the fontaine de lida represents jupiter in the shape of a swan approaching the pleased and astonished lida the water flows from the beak of a swan the fountain of mars represents the goddess of health holding a draught of water to the lips of a dying soldier who revives as he drinks the fountain in the place du chatelet is a circular basin from the centre of which springs a palm tree encircled by statues representing justice strength prudence and vigilance on the shaft of the column are inscribed the names of napoleon's conquest the water issues from cornucopiae which terminate in fish's head above are the heads representing the winds in the midst is a globe supported by a gilded statue of victory i have mentioned those of the fountains which particularly struck me there are many of equal beauty i must not pass over without mention what we took delight in passing under a few days ago the arc de triomphe de l'etoile a vast central arch ninety feet in height graced by piers on either side supporting an entablature and attic upon a pedestal from each of these piers rise groups of allegorical figures on the internal sides of the piers are inscribed the titles of victories won by france the arch is pierced by a transversal arch engraven with the names of great warriors this arch was commenced by napoleon and finished by louis philippe within the monument a staircase in each pier leads to three stories of apartments as yet unappropriated to any use after the nuptials of the emperor with marie louise the arch not being completed an immense model in wood and canvas was erected decorated and illuminated the emperor entering paris drove through in triumph with his bride paris is surrounded by barrieres to prevent the introduction of contraband goods some of them are very splendid edifices resembling in form the arc de l'etoile also called barrier de l'etoile but these will scarcely interest you 
the garden of the tuileries with its vast groves its charming flower gardens its fountains its groups of statues lining every walk you must often have heard described i will but mention the classic groups before which we most frequently pause one is composed of the chaste lucretia supported by her horror-stricken husband her young children are clinging to her robe while she with expiring breath recounts her wrongs and draws the dagger from her bleeding breast my other favorite is atalanta flying before hippomenes he flings the golden gifts of venus at her feet to retard her flight and wins the goal and the coy nymph for his own with the champs elysees i was somewhat disappointed to be sure there are vast avenues of noble trees which form pleasant and sheltered promenades but the old women with their cake and apple stands and the old men with one arm supposed to be amputated hidden in their coats and a large black patch over one eye and the numerous little terrestrial-looking cafes remind one that this elysium is but of the earth the bois de boulogne the famous rendezvous for duelists is a large forest always gay with splendid equipages and richly dressed promenaders and is the most fashionable drive in paris in spite of the gay life which we led in the french metropolis my habits of study were not wholly abandoned an italian t teacher paid me visits every morning and the previous night's dissipations never prevented my taking a lesson before breakfast nor did i cease to find pleasure in writing i commenced a little drama in six acts the peculiarities of the plot made five as i thought an impossible number designated for private representation we were to give a fete on our return to america and the play was to be enacted at melrose by my sisters and myself it was written in blank verse or at least what i imagined to be blank verse the scenery was painted by parisian artists under my direction and some of the principal dresses which were exceedingly rich were made by parisian costumers the play was entitled golzara or the persian slave it was nearly completed when we left paris at Havre, we took passage in the ship ville de lyon under the command of captain stoddart and sailed for america End of chapter six